0: Um, but just a couple announcements for you today that I just want to share it with about. Uh, one is a thing called ONU Plus. So if you're new to our church or new to like our tradition, one of the things we are, we partner with universities. So Olivet Nazarene University is in the Chicago suburbs, and one of the things we're launching starting this next fall is beginning in the fall of 2023. Uh, you can get a bachelor's degree from like this location. We're partnering with Olivet, and we'll be offering undergraduate degrees here. Uh, So Pastor Matt will be the one kind of spearheading that that program. And so it's considerably discounted from what it was before, but it's um, if you were to go to campus, but if you're interested in continuing your education, know that you can actually do that here from this place starting in the fall. Uh, You'll hear more about that in the days ahead, but just wanted you to be aware. The second part is um, beginning January 22nd, that's a Sunday, Uh, we'll begin offering two services starting that day. And so here's what that matters for you. Um, We need some of you to commit to a particular time, um, whether it be 9 or 10.30, and then we'll also need some of you to be willing to serve in multiple times. So if that's you, or you're willing, we'll be talking more about that in the days and weeks ahead. But just when you put it on your calendar and know that that will be happening at that time, and we hope uh, you'll take seriously what it looks like for us to partner with God's kingdom and with one another, and with our community. And so that'll be happening on that day. And so I was thinking, though, um, as I thought about today, um, we're continuing our series, actually finishing our series in Revelation. Some of you are really excited about that, um, that we're finishing. Uh, Some of you are really excited that we're talking about it. So um, we have both. But I was thinking, uh, yesterday, I recorded the Notre Dame football game, which I do pretty much every Saturday in the fall. And I recorded it on purpose, because if I record it, I can watch like an hour to an hour and a half late, And then fast forward through all the commercials, and then watch the game and finish about the right time. The problem was yesterday, I was home a little later, so it had been almost two hours since the game started. And then, um, my wife and sister-in-law were watching the end of the Michigan game, and the Ohio State game came on, and um, I happened to see the ticker on the bottom. Should have not looked. But the first score I saw was Notre Dame was winning 35 to nothing. So the good news was I didn't have to worry about the outcome of the game, but I was thinking of the week before. I didn't know what happened, and I watched the whole game, and it's like so much better. But but are there things in life or times when you're like, oh, if I didn't know the beginning, or you walk into something not knowing the beginning or not knowing the end, like maybe you've, a friend or family member's been watching a movie, and you walk in and you miss the beginning, and you watch the whole thing, and you feel like you're missing something, Maybe you experienced that. Or when I was, a, uh, I was an infant, I don't know exactly how old, um, I was apparently a really good baby. And so my parents took me to a movie. and Because um, otherwise, why would you take a baby to a movie? So that's my only assumption, is I must have been a good baby. Uh, the problem was, my parents said that as my dad was holding me on his lap in this movie, that they were so excited to see, um, I went to the bathroom, but not just a little bit. Like It went through my diaper, through my clothes, onto my dad. And so he had to get up and carry me out to the car. And he said it was the worst drive home because it stuck so bad. Um, But they missed the end of the movie. And this is like pre-streaming. And it was like the last week out. They didn't want to pay. Parents were relatively newly married and didn't have any money and they had a baby. And so they couldn't afford to go back to the movie again. So they had to wait like six months for it to come out to rent a video so they could see the end of this movie. So like they waited forever to see the end. But, but I think that's kind of how it might be helpful to think about the book of Revelation. And here's what I mean. I think so often people begin talking about faith or talking about scripture. And they jump, if we're going to use like the Bible, we'd say they don't jump to like Genesis chapter 1. They jump to Genesis chapter 3 if you're like, I don't know anything about the Bible, so what does that mean? Well, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 paints this beautiful picture of God creating all the created order in this beautiful garden, and he creates all this stuff, and he says it's good. And it's this like kind of picture of what could be, what was meant to be. And then in chapter 3, uh, people are given a choice to enter into a relationship with God. And so in that choice, they can choose to go where they want to go. And so we see in chapter 3 that people are like, you know what? This God guy is pretty good, but I wonder what would happen if I could be like him and I could do what I want. And so God loved them enough to let them go where they wanted to go. The problem was, as we know in our own lives, if we're honest, where we want to go often is not a great place. And so we see chapter 3, sin enters into the picture, and then we see the rest of Scripture kind of, what's it look like for God to try to redeem what's been broken? And then... If we flip to the back end, lots of people end where we ended last week in Revelation chapter twenty with this like lake of fire, and that's where they end the picture. So if if that's where we end, right? If we begin at chapter three, and we end at chapter twenty. It's kind of this awful picture. We begin with you no know, sin, and we end with death. Awesome. I thought Christianity was supposed to be good news. Well, if that's the picture where we start and where we end, we've lost the good news. The benefit for us is this that. This idea that God desires to destroy um, just isn't the picture that we find throughout the scriptures. What we find is this. um, The biblical story begins with goodness and life. And ends with restoration and life eternal. Biblical story begins with goodness and life. And ends with restoration and life eternal. In the middle, sometimes it's a mess, but what we find is a God who promises in the end a picture of a garden city, this new Jerusalem. It's like, right, not the idea that this is dist- everything is destroyed, but everything is redeemed and restored and made new. And so I, I would say this, like one of the things that happens for us as we walk through the series, I'll kind of summarize a little bit, right? It's 12 weeks, so you can go back and listen online if you want. Uh, I'm not going to try to summarize the whole series in like five minutes, that would take the whole time today. But what I'll say is this, we began looking at the seven churches, because that's who the letter of, of Revelation, it was a letter written to the seven churches that was kind of circulated and read aloud. So if you've never read it, read it in one sitting, because that's probably a great way to understand it. Um, And then it uses these Old Testament pictures all throughout. And so if you don't know the Old Testament, it's like a really weird book because it's painting pictures with Old Testament stories that its early readers and hearers would have understood. And so quickly summarize. here's what I'd say one of the biggest key points of the whole book is our life more marked by the beast, which we'd say the things of this world, the things that are evil, the things that are broken, sin, or... Is our life more marked by the Lamb, a.k.a. Jesus? Which thing marks our life? And so all throughout, John compares and contrasts the kingdom of Babylon is what he uses, but he's also talking about Rome, Babylon or Rome, versus the kingdom of God. He compares and contrasts the kingdoms of the world with that. And what we find is what John is trying to articulate is that God is inviting us into a radically new way of life, embodied in the person of Jesus, And we see that all throughout, this is kind of the point, that there's celebration and vindication for the martyrs who've given their life for their faith. They're kind of celebrated all throughout. But also, here's kind of been my hope for you in this series, that we might trade a picture of Revelation as like a historical prediction and think of it more in terms of a theological picture of the way God intended for us to live and the way he promises that we will live in the end. That maybe we begin to see it from a new perspective Um, And we wouldn't approach it with fear and trembling because we often read Revelation like it freaks us out. But what we find is it begins with the idea that is the revelation of Jesus. And it was good news to the first century church. And so it should probably be good news to us. And we see this kind of glimpse of what God desires in chapters 4 and 5. Because the point of those two chapters, as we see kind of from from God's throne room, if you will, is the idea that all of creation is created to worship. You and I all worship something. The question is, what do you and I worship? The point that John's making in those two chapters is that in the midst of all the things that we could worship in life, from ourselves to athletics to politics to money, all these things, anything you want to name, there's only one thing worthy. It's God, the Father, and Jesus, his Son. And that's it. Nothing else is worth our worship. And so we could talk a lot more about this, but that's kind of a background as we begin to look at Revelation chapter 21, the first five verses here. Here's what John writes. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look... Everything new. Again, John's pulling pictures from the prophets, I think in terms of Isaiah and others. And i got to be honest with you, maybe you're like me, you caught caught up early in this when it says there'll be no more sea, and you're like, huh, I kind of like the ocean. What do we do with that? Well, I don't know if there's literally going to be no ocean, but I know this, what what he's trying to say is this, that the sea represented in the ancient world, it represented evil and chaos. It was uncontrollable. right? If you go back to the Genesis story in Genesis chapter 1, it says in the beginning everything was formless and void. Tohu bohu, it was chaos. Tohubo or the Greek or the I'm sorry, the Hebrew words there. And it was like uncontrollable. And when God spoke, he began to control the waters. And this idea that in the midst of chaos, God created order. And so what he's promising here is there will be a day when what seems to represent all the evil and chaos and brokenness of this life will be reigned in and will be no more. Now, it doesn't talk about lakes or beaches, so if you live in West Michigan, you might be okay in that. But what he's trying to say is the new Jerusalem is the opposite of Rome or Babylon. It's the opposite of what those things have been. It's this idea that what we see then is this picture of a wedding. Have you ever been to a wedding? Right, there's that cool moment in most weddings. I say most because not all. I've been to some weird weddings, but but in most weddings, like there's this kind of scene where the bride enters in through the back door, or hallway, or whatever, and there's this split second where the groom sees her usually for the first time. And lots of times, my favorite is usually like the biggest, like jacked-looking dudes are the ones who cry the most. Um, it's one of my favorite things to watch um, because they see her and they're like, oh, right, and it's. Every woman in the room goes, oh, and every guy's like, are we done yet? When's this reception? There's a game on. No, um, but, but there's that moment where the groom sees the bride. And everything stops. And everything freezes. And there's this moment where everyone in the room just kind of realizes this is what it's meant to be. And this is the picture we see here. It's that Christ is the groom. And the bride is his church, and he sees her as radiant and beautiful, as if he's seen her for the first time. And it enters in, this is the picture we find in Revelation chapter 21. And then it says this, that God himself will dwell with them. And this word dwell means to tabernacle with. And you're like, okay, what, what's the point of that? Was well, the same word if you go back and read John chapter 1, where it says... John was and Mrs. Jesus was the word, and in him was the word, and he was life, and all these things. But the whole point there is this, that he came to dwell, to tabernacle with us in John 1. If you go back to the tabernacle, which was an actual thing in the Old Testament, it was the place where God's glory, God's presence seemed to dwell among earth. And so what he's saying here is this, God's very presence, he will tabernacle, he will live with his people for all eternity, and he will make all things new. And so in the Old Testament, there was the temple... There's specifically the, the Holy of Holies. And so in Ezekiel, there's kind of a picture that that maybe, just maybe, that somehow it might overflow and spill out onto all people, that God's presence would like leak out of the temple. And this is the picture we see here. That God will, it's what we use the word often in, in like Christian tradition, we say Jesus was the incarnate God, right? He was God in flesh. We even use a phrase that we'll talk about next week and throughout the the Advent season, the idea of he was Emmanuel, he was God with us. And in this picture, it's no longer do we see glimpses. No longer did God just come in the person of Jesus and was resurrected. No longer we see just glimpses of God with us in the midst of the life of the church. But there will be a day when God himself will be with us in his fullness. And we'll find that life will be what it was meant to be. That we'll see the presence of God in his fullness. Fullness. Now we see this passage, right? It says the world will be no more in some ways, right? But not that the world will be no more, but the ways of the world will be no more. Heaven and earth come together in this kind of holy, uniting way. Right? Some will even use the phrase like heaven and earth kiss. They come together in this moment where God's realm and the realm of humanity enter into this. No longer are they just kind of like two sides of the same coin, but they become one. And that we find that for all eternity, God desires to be with you and I. And this is the idea of the new creation, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, God's place of reign where all wrongs are made right. And then we get that line where there'll be no more tears, no more mourning, and no more death, and no more pain. Do you ever feel like life is so heavy? That burdens are so great? grieve the loss of someone you love, you find your heart is broken, that you're mourning, that you, that you just long for someone who you have lost to be with you, and you know the pain that that causes. And so um, I was thinking about that this week as I officiated a funeral for a woman um, on Friday. And as I listened to her life story, and this kind of like tough relationship she had with God and religion, and, and her family, you know, they're all in the church today, but they're just talking about their, their mom or their grandmother, and I was listening to the stories— And she wrestled with, because she had kind of a bad picture painted of who God was. Um, And so she didn't know what to do with the fact that her husband left her, and then she had to bury a son at 28. Like, she, she didn't know what to do with these things, right? Those are things that are not meant to happen. Marriage is meant to be this beautiful thing that lasts for a lifetime. We know that doesn't always work that way, but that's God's intention. And we know that parents are not supposed to bury their children. We know sometimes it happens. But the problem was for this woman that she had seen the picture of God as like God will make all things right, no matter what, right now. If you're just faithful enough, great things will happen. The problem is, that's not the picture we find throughout the New Testament. It's not the picture we find throughout the Bible. What we find is that God often makes things right. That sometimes happens. But what we find in the person of Jesus, he promises he will be present with us in the midst of the heartache and the pain and the suffering. Right, 11 of the 12 people that followed Jesus died as martyrs. One was stranded on an island. Right? Like, they didn't really have this great life that we would think of as great life, but they knew the very presence of God, and it made all the difference in the world in what they were going through. And so maybe we need to be reminded today that whatever we're going through, God is with us. There's nothing you and I go through that he is not with us. He will grieve with us in our moments of grief celebrate in the moments of celebration. But what he promises us here in the book of Revelation is there will be a day when there will be no more death, or no more pain, or no more suffering, when all wrongs are made right. The problem for you and I is this, is we live in a world where because God loves us enough to let us go where we want to go, other people get to go where they want to go, and that often leads to our own wounds and brokenness. So what to do, do with all these things, right? This is what we begin to see in chapter 21. This idea that that God is bringing the culmination of all things from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. He's bringing, tying these all together. So he paints this picture of what this new city will be like, and it mentions like 12 stones, which would have been worn by the high priest in the Old Testament. 12. Apostles and twelve tribes represent the fullness of God's people. And so he paints all these pictures. And I love this idea, because like some people are like, oh, well in heaven there's streets of gold, and they get all bent out of shape about streets of gold. You know why I love that? Because what we think is so valuable is so worthless in heaven you can walk on it. We put our values in the wrong things sometimes. That's why we walk on streets of gold. But here's what this text says, and I think this is helpful. Michael Gorman's a scholar and talks about Revelation a lot. So I think this is helpful as we think about the new Jerusalem, the city. Here's what he writes. One way Revelation portrays the new Jerusalem as God's alternative to Babylon is its very size. 12,000 stadia, or 1,500 miles in length, width, and height means that the city has a footprint approximately equal in size to the entire landmass of the Roman Empire. It is large enough to encompass the world as John knew it. It is probably depicted as square because the ancient ideal of perfection, especially for a city, was a square. Indeed, Babylon was remembered as a square. But Revelation goes a dimension further, and portrays the city as a cube, because the Holy of Holies was a cube in First Kings 6.20. And the victorious children of God are a community of royal priests. Right? The Holy of Holies was the place where God's presence dwelled, and you couldn't just enter in. Only the high priest could do that. You and I were not welcomed or invited into that space. Everyday Jewish people were not invited in. The followers of God were not invited in. Only one person and only at the right time. But what John's trying to paint in this picture of Revelation, that this is the very character and nature of God, that that when he makes all things right, there is no time where you and I are not invited invited into his presence. There's no time in which we are not invited into that space. And so here's what Revelation goes on to say, jumping to verse 22 of chapter 21. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Right? One of the coolest pictures in that is the gates of the city of God are never closed. God is the light of the world now and for all eternity. But we know far too often we don't choose to live in light. We choose to go our own direction in our own lives. We know this. right? We just talked a few passages ago a couple weeks ago about how how all the, these plagues and all these things happen and people are like, you know what? Um, yeah, I'm good. I still don't need God. Like I'm kind of out on that idea. Right? All these things happen and no one repents. And then right, these witnesses, these people bear faithful witness to who God is and almost the whole world repents and turns to God. Right? Here's the reality of how I would say that. Um, years ago, C.S. Lewis wrote a book. It's called The Great Divorce. Maybe you've read it. Maybe you haven't. Uh, it's worth reading. I, I used to teach a class at Olivet, and um, we would require all the students to read this book, The Great Divorce. Not because it's um, literal. It's fiction, by the way. It is a fiction book, but it's a super good fiction book. And, and in this, C.S. Lewis paints this picture... Of like heaven and hell and kind of a purgatory place. And, and, and in it what you see is people continue to go further and further away from heaven. Why? Because they keep choosing to go their own direction. What they long for and desire and crave takes them further and further away from who God is. And the goodness of God they run from because it's not what they desire. It's not what they think will fill them and they get angrier and more bitter the further they get from God and they, they get glimpses but they, they don't care they keep going where they want to go and the picture is this the, the great divorce this idea that God will give you what you want but if you keep going that direction and you don't go towards him you're not going to want what it ends up being right, it's fiction but C.S. Lewis's whole point is like the gates of heaven are always open but you keep, continue to choose to go the other direction one of Lewis's famous quotes is this, that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. This idea that you and I, when we choose things that lead to more and more brokenness in our life, we enslave ourselves. Over and over again, we choose these things, and we we think they're going to bring life. We long for these things to bring life. We, we we can't consume enough, or buy enough, or have enough. We talked about last week how we takes this picture of all these like glamorous luxury goods, and we. And people are weeping because they can't have their sweet stuff from Amazon Prime any longer, right? Like, this is the picture of all these things we long for, we hope for, we want. But what God is trying to say, if you will trust that your greatest identity, your greatest value in this world is to know him and be known by him, to worship him and find your identity in him, then you might find that life makes sense. To live from the place of a God who desperately loves you, And longs for you to know Him the way He knows you. And this is the picture we see: the picture of idea of new life, of resurrected life. Right? Right. Some people will say things like, "Well, you know, I I, I don't." Anyway, I don't. I don't know what people do with the idea that we don't miss in the scriptures. What God says is someday all people will be resurrected. That means like brought back to life. If they come to know the fullness of who God is in His Son Jesus. He wants you and I to know life that leads to life that is life eternal. When we get to pick it. We're invited in to make that decision. And the scene in Revelation 21 and 22 is this that we see that, that Jesus comes as the first, It's the beginning of what God desires to do among all of us in our lives to redeem and restore and make all things new. And we see this garden city, right? This river that flows, that is this river of life. And you and I are invited to, to drink from this river of life. But it means we may have to let go of some of the things that we've held on to too tightly. But maybe, just maybe, God really will redeem and restore. If you and I will choose to live into knowing him, we'll find that's true. All right, there's a story in John chapter 4, and it's a story of this Samaritan woman. And, and, and maybe you know the story, maybe you don't. Um, but... If you don't know this, Jews and Samaritans don't really like each other. Jews think Samaritans are like the worst people ever. And Samaritans think, well, then we don't like you either. And so there's a scene in in there where Jesus, rather than doing what good Jews would do, he would go around the city. He doesn't go around. He goes through. And he goes to this well, and there's this woman at the well. And a woman there in the middle of the day, there's all kinds of implications for that. I'm not going to even talk about those today. But the point is this. The woman is there, and Jesus asks for a drink. She offers him a drink. And then he says, did you know that you could have a drink that you'd never be thirsty again? She's like, please, I do not want to walk to this well any longer. Right? We don't have running water here in the ancient world. And so, yes, if I could have water where I don't have to walk here anymore, I'm all in. And then here's what we actually see in John chapter 4. Everyone who drinks the water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. This is the picture we see again in Revelation chapter 22. That God wants you and I to drink from this place in which we can find life. But the challenge for you and I is often we, think we find the things that give us life in our own minds don't come from him. They come from whatever we can pursue. But what if we pursued him? What if maybe we choose today to find the source of our life in Jesus? What if Jesus becomes the source of our life, what he offers? What if we pursue him with all that we are? And we find that it reorients our very lives, that puts everything else in perspective. What might happen if you and I, like just like he says in Revelation 21, behold, I'm making all things new. What if the way that God desires to begin to make things new right here, right now is in us? What if, what if right here, right now, God wants to make you new? He wants to redeem and restore. Go back to the picture in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, that everything he created is good. And he says people are created in the image of God. What if God wants to restore that image in you and I? What if through Jesus, God is making all things new and he wants to do it in our lives? What if you and I will say yes to that? What if you and I would choose to follow him with all that we are and find him as the source of our life? Then, maybe just then, we can see what God desires to do in and through us. Right, this is why we're talking about, in January 22nd, having two services, because we want to create more space for more people. Right? Because when kids are in here, there aren't a lot of open seats. And they're like, well, you could just not have kids. That's a terrible option. We're not going to do that one. So here's the reality for you and I. What might happen if you and I partnered together with God and said, hey, we've come to know this place that is the source of life for us. Would you come to that place as well? Would you drink from the well of life? And this is why we gather and this is why we exist because we believe God is redeeming and restoring and making all things new and he wants to do it in you and I. And so the picture of the book of Revelation is this, that in the midst of all the competing worldviews that exist, there is one kingdom that exists that is gonna make all wrongs right. There is one who is worth our worship there's one who loves you There's one who desires to redeem and restore and make all things new and it's God himself working through his son and will you and I choose to entrust our lives to him so that we can come to know life in this life but life for all eternity we pray with me this morning Father we thank you for this opportunity to gather together for the way you love us and desire for us to know you We ask that you might help us today to choose life and life abundantly, to know your Son in such a way that we too enter into this city, this new Jerusalem, that we might recognize he desires to make us holy and blameless and pure in such a way that we find our identity, our purpose in living, and what we exist for wrapped up in your Son. May We recognize this idea that you long for the day in which there will be no more pain and suffering, no more tears and no more grief. But until that day, you call your people to be faithful witnesses to what you have done and what you will do. So may we be a people so radically defined by your love that it transforms the world in which we live. May we come to know the one who gave his life for us, who says to us, Do you know the fullness of my Father's love? There's no place he won't go, not even death itself for you. And so, Father, help us to recognize you don't You don't call us to just lay down our life for nothing, but you call us to lay down our lives so that we can find life that leads to life for all eternity. And so, Father, help us to choose you above all else. We we'll pray this all in your son Jesus' name.